Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Yambri peoples past, present and emerging. We would also like to pay our respects to the Wathaurong people of the Kulin Nation. All right, let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, and coming to you from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I'm your familiar stranger today, Alex, together with my fellow familiar strangers. We have Hannah Warso, PhD candidate at the University of Queensland and president of the Australian Network of Student Anthropologists. Hi Alex, how are you? I'm talking from Manjin, which is also known as Brisbane, and I'm on Yuggera and Turrbal land. We also have Dinath Adhikari, another PhD candidate at the Australian National University studying tea shops in Myanmar. Hey Alex, good to be here. Good to have you on. And lastly, we have our very own Carolyn West. Hi Carolyn. Hi Alex. Before we dive into today's discussion, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on The Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight on today's episode. All right, Hannah, what have you been thinking about this week? Well, Alex, I've been thinking about identity of politics in relation to elections and not just the US election, but the Queensland election. Yes, we had an election here and other elections that have been happening around the world with very interesting characters refusing to leave office. Earlier you said this was based on an article you'd read relating to identity politics. What do you see as the relationship between identity politics and, I guess, capital P politics? It was interesting. I was reading an article by Judith Butler in The Guardian where she said that basically Trump has appealed to half of the country because he's cultivated a practice, I'm going to read from it actually, that licenses an exhilarated form of sadism freed from any shackles of moral shame or ethical obligation. And the shameless spectacle has all along depended on a lurid picture of the left as moralistic, punitive, judgmental, repressive and ready to deprive the general populace of every ordinary pleasure and freedom. And I just found that fascinating as a prism from which to view why the hell so many people voted for Trump. Look, I find it really interesting because I'm somebody who resisted the culture wars narrative for a long time. This idea of this super split. I was a bit old school, you know, it's the economy, stupid. People are afraid of their jobs, their livelihoods, etc, etc. But it feels more and more that I'm coming around to this explanation of identity. It really resonated with me, the Judith Butler article on identity politics, because at the moment I'm writing up my thesis, I'm drafting it into its final form, and it's all about asylum seeker policy. And the more I look at it, the more it's about Australian identity politics. It's got nothing to do with asylum seekers. It's about the right to stand at the gate and say, bugger off, don't come in. I think it's really interesting when we talk about identity politics as these blocks and one of the things you reminded me of was this work that came out in 2016 when Trump first came to power and it was basically this idea of how Trump came to power and who were the people who were voting for him and basically there was like this notion of the 
American dream that was had like escaped these people and you know that like what we were talking about identity that had been like constructed and had sort of projected through these different communicative mediums of how someone should be living their lives and in that sense it became like this friction point that kind of othered others and then we kind of think about what you were saying in Australia you know how we have like the gatepost of who is allowed in and then what that sense of, I guess, like this sense of insecurity that enables this kind of othering to take place. And whenever I hear this kind of talk about identity politics and, you know, as a migrant, you know, I kind of always think about what is the insecurity here? What What is at hold that enables this kind of people to be so fearful of losing their privileges, so to speak? specific discussion. I've been reading about Mimembe's necropolitics and going further than that and looking at Jason DeLeon's necroviolence, which is exemplified in the Sonoran Desert, which is a space where the US government has a policy that uh, essentially tries to deter migrants from Mexico into doing a border crossing by funneling them into this harsh, arid space. And so one thing that I find interesting in all of this is actually how politics and policy actually encourages this idea of otherness through use of specific language and linguistics, but also through this idea of pushing people and marginalized groups into this out of sight, out of mind space, like the desert in the US or uh, some of the islands that we have here with the refugees and the detention centers. I agree with you, Carolyn. Uh, And Johan Galton said this in 1990. He talked about structural violence, cultural violence and direct violence being three sides, three mutually supporting sides of a triangle of violence. And in terms of funneling people into neglect, I mean, look, at we, we don't have a regional solution for refugees in Southeast Asia and the Pacific. So people are stuck and neglected. It might not be quite the same necroviolence of Jason de Leon's book, but people are left homeless in Indonesia with nothing or they risk being imprisoned. And that's a policy of neglect. It's necropolitics. I've got to say, so while we're on the topic of neglect and thinking about neglected things, Din, what have you been thinking about this week? Like a lot of people listening, I think I was caught up with the spectacle of the US election, but it got me thinking because Myanmar, which is the country I study, has also held its general election. And when I kind of got up in the morning, I was trying to look for news and there wasn't really that same kind of live polling and election coverage, even though the connection with Myanmar is actually quite strong. There's a lot of everyday kind of impacts on Australian society from being so close to each other. So I guess my question is like, why do people care so much about the US election? (laughs) Loaded question. question. (laughs) Yeah. I was actually feeling really guilty for for being very engaged in the US election, but then I felt like it is really important to care about what goes on in the US because I think Trumpism, to use my favourite word of the moment, what he stands for as an ideology is something that is transcending borders and and kind of infiltrating itself, especially into our, our politics and our ways of thinking and behaving as well. I think the lockdown in Melbourne is a really good example of this, where people have been protesting and using very similar language to what was seen in the US from far right protesters against the lockdown over there. But do you think that all this attention to the US election is just 
you know, practical and entirely rational given the US's place in the world? Or do you think there's more to it? Because I've got to say, personally, as somebody who took the day off to watch the election, it's as much as anything the spectacle of it. It definitely makes what happens here look really boring. (laughs) Well, look, I recently, and apologies, like I love the ABC, as in the Australian ABC, but after following the election the whole day, then cutting to like the ABC's version of it and where they put the infographic up with like which states had voted which way, and man, it looked like something I could have done on MS Paint (laughs) in comparison to like the graphics that I'd been seeing the the day before. So I was kind of thinking about the spectacle part of it, you know, like Trump lying and the you know whatever the tv coverage was the electoral map and i think like that almost kind of overwhelms some of the broader kind of messaging i think because i agree there's a lot of great positives that came out of the u.s election i mean in terms of diversity and representation but then the end result is an old white dude (laughs) beat another old white dude you think about biden also the politics he he stands by he's a super problematic guy and we that that stuff sort of gets Subsumed. So I think it was almost like watching a really good episode of like trashy reality. It, well, it was just a really great episode of trashy reality TV. You didn't, I think a lot of people wouldn't even really care about the outcomes. Random question, but what do you guys think the spectacle of the current Australian government is? I have not caught the Four Corners thing, so I can't. Oh, no, neither have I. I haven't watched I that yet. Can't answer oh, the I question. watched it. I watched it. Oh my God. I'm so interested. I'm just. I'm not allowing myself until I finish my essay. I had a really interesting conversation with someone a couple years ago when I was living in London about would I prefer to have US politics of any kind of form, not specifically Trump, obviously, and obviously I wouldn't prefer to have Trump. And the person that I was discussing this with, he said, well, you know, like at least Australian politics doesn't particularly influence the rest of the world in the same way that the US politics seems to. And I was like, that's a really interesting way to think about it but it does yeah it does it might not be a like a similar scale i guess but even then i definitely is something i think you could debate we do still play very much on a world stage i really agree with you carolyn i'm just taking it back to asylum seekers because that's what i live and breathe at the moment but denmark's now got an island where it's going to detain people um you know since when i did not hear australia has a lot of these things are still just media reports, but Australian asylum seeker policy is being copied and replicated in Europe. So we are very heavily influential. And regarding Scott Morrison, he might come across as the dagging dad, but have we forgotten that he was once the Minister for Immigration and the head kicker talking about illegal people, people coming to our shores seeking safety were illegal, and he's got a boat in his office saying I stopped these, which is not true. So I think in a way, Morrison is beguilingly tricky and comes across as nice, but I think that can be equally dangerous. Well, I'd say more dangerous at times, but nevertheless. Marketing no, scary. I don't, yeah, I don't think he's, a, I, I don't think you can compare them. And I, obviously America is far more influential. Well, he is Scotty from marketing. Anyway, uh, I've got to keep this discussion moving. So Carolyn, what have you been thinking about this week? Well, to change the topic a little bit, I've been thinking about the use of deep fakes and the rise of AI technology that allows us to change our appearance online. So I'm wondering what everyone's thoughts are in terms of the implications and perhaps even some of the applications this kind of tech might have on not only how we see ourselves, 
but also how we might see each other. I have things I want to say about this topic. I'm so glad you asked. Go but ahead. before I do that, <laughs> just for no, just for our audience, deep fakes. Just in case anyone hasn't heard the term. I don't have like a great, uh, I guess, definition in mind for deepfakes, but my understanding of it is essentially when you're able to take someone's face and multiple versions of that face and turn it into a video. And you can also do that with voice now as well. And the classic example is they put a Obama's face and voice saying a speech by, was it by Donald Trump? Is that correct? I don't remember. There's a few of that sort of things floating around. And it is. Yeah. And it's quite convincing. I guess for me, thinking about deep fakes, I think it's an extension of the conversation of what we've put on into this space, which it's only been a recent shift where we've actually started thinking about what we put on and how that's being utilized by big corporations and things like that. This idea that you could be impersonated by someone does seem like this like huge violation of someone's privacy, which we haven't usually kind of thought about in the online space. To take it to a slightly more abstract level, do you own your face? <laughs> I mean, like, so Carolyn, I know you're a photographer. Yes. I think it's legal to just take a photo of somebody's face on the street. Like, pretty unethical. Yeah. Well, what that, happens if you, if, if you just take a photo of some rando? I mean, we've, that, all, we've all been in people's photographs. If you think about how many people actually hold cameras and are filming all the time, we, we are in a photograph in, on someone's Facebook, probably from a country that we can't even imagine. And someone has probably seen our likeness uh, to some degree. But are they allowed to do things with well, that likeness? Put it on a billboard? Well, this do is an the, oil I, painting? I was just going to say, I, I've, I've got this beautiful photograph that I've taken of a, a waitress at a donut shop in Brooklyn. And it was a sneaky, like shot from the hip kind of thing where she kind of just looked at me and I just happened to get this stunning photograph of her and it's on it's in my portfolio it's on my website and I've had a lot of thoughts about it whether or not I think it's appropriate because she never like she never sort of gave me the verbal consent uh which is something that's talked a lot about in photography ethics she also didn't necessarily say to me hey did you take a photo of me do you mind deleting it I'm not okay with that but also I would definitely don't want to put the onus on her agency there either and it's interesting there is this conversation that I've had with a lot of very well respected photographers and a lot of people will say it's okay to take photos of strangers like you're capturing the human condition and blah 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 but it is I think a lot of the time it is what you plan to do with that photograph are you earning money from that image like putting it on a billboard is very different to having it in a portfolio for example or selling prints of it is again also very different to just having it like taking an image and popping it on your Facebook or your Instagram, you know? So I think it's also the intention behind the photograph needs to be considered as much as the actual act of taking the photograph itself. I think there's a whole other side of this that we need to consider, and that's domestic violence. There was a situation recently, it was on SBS on their website, about a guy making sexually explicit photographs of his partner, his wife and then sharing them online, and they were fake. And I also think of images of children. So I, I have a real issue with it. I can see, I agree, maybe in sex work or, or whatever, but I just think it's so fraught. But can you stop it? I mean, those particular practices, I hope so. But are we going to have to learn, with, learn to live with this technology? Well, we already, we already are. I'd love to discuss that more, but I've really got to 
uh, keep it moving. So which comes to my question and what I'm thinking about this week. In day-to-day life, at least in Australia and I think the West, we talk about ourselves as having individual likes and dislikes. So as I've mentioned on this podcast many times, I'm a nerd. I like Dungeons and Dragons. I also kind of like jazz, quite a fan of rock. And I like these things, and we often consider these as expressions of my individuality. But really, as anthropologists, we know these things are, to a large extent, maybe totally, determined by the society around us. I like these things because I grew up at a certain moment in time with certain social influences. Yet, even knowing all that, when it comes to how I just live my life... I just still like, yeah, this is me, this is who I am, and this is my individuality, damn it. So for me, this becomes a question about reconciling our sort of like anthropological abstract knowledge with just kind of how we live our lives. How do you guys see us reconciling these two different kind of facts, I guess? So I guess like our ego kind of gets in the way, right? Like even though we know this as anthropologists, it's like we still like to believe that we're individual, we're separate from the group, I guess. Uh, and we imagine ourselves to, to encompass these whole things, even though it is kind of just a residual of the society that we grow up in and inhabit. But do you guys agree with that? Like that's an assertion. Does anyone disagree with this idea that these things are really socially determined? Well, I think we're all enmeshed. You can't not be enmeshed. And you derive relationships from and sustenance from those relationships. So if you hang out with your mates and play Dungeons and Dragons, you probably really enjoy it. I've got friends who do gaming nights and it's one of the highlights of their weeks. <laughs> I guess for sure. But then as anthropologists, that's nifty to know. But what do we do with that knowledge if you see what I'm getting at? So I think this actually speaks to a broader issue within anthropology about communication of anthropological knowledge yeah and there's there's an art and basically 99% of anthropologists don't have it (laughs) um (laughs) there's no real answer to it but I think it's actually sort of a really important thing to kind of acknowledge because that's this is where anthropology is needed is that it sort of has separated itself from the public discourse in a sense and then occasionally people's works kind of come in and they make kind of waves but being able to show that there are all these social processes that go into our everyday life. I think I would say probably like on anthropologist terms to be more simple in our ways of communicating. It's not like dumbing down. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm, But the language is more accessible. I guess what does one do from a non-anthropological perspective? What does the lay person do when we tell them this information that everything that you love is just a social construct? You know, like how, how do people react to that? <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> like, cool, I don't know what that means. Or I still I'm still gonna think I'm an individual. Like, I mean, is there a benefit to have that conversation with like a wide group of people? Uh yeah, Carolyn, to answer what I've been thinking about is it was something that struck me a long a long time ago. Five years ago, had my anniversary with my partner recently. She likes a lot more female singers than I do. This is the sorts of observations that how to communicate it, I don't know. Obviously, my musical tastes are shaped by society around me. I did not sort through Spotify and go, oh my God, female singer, no thank you. And yet through this, it meant I have this music collection with, I don't know, probably only 10% female vocalists. And I think a lot of people, when we say things like, there's a real problem in female representation in the arts, they think it's this question of individual choice. But when actually it's kind of like, no, we've kind of socially constructed it so that certain voices are heard and are just kind of considered 
more likable. Again, not in a really conscious way, just in a, these are the music that people kind of buy, the shows they watch, etc., etc. To my mind, Alex, what you're saying is that's the value of anthropology, is that we can say things to people that engage them critically with their lives and get them to think as the name of this podcast is, it's making the familiar strange and the strange familiar. It's about thinking about what you do beyond your social sphere well, and fuzzy. your everyday life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that makes a good place to leave it. So if anyone out there listening knows a good way to help bring the word of anthropology further afield and help others critically reflect on their social practices, let us know. But unfortunately... That's all we have time for. So, I'd like to thank Hannah. Thanks, Alex. Lovely to be here. Absolute pleasure. I'd like to thank Din. Thanks, Alex. And I'd like to thank Carolyn. Thank you. And I was your host, Alex. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producers are the wonderful Deanna Caddo and Matthew Ford. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page patreon.com forward slash the familiar strange not the strange familiars which is another fun podcast just not ours you can find the show notes including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com if you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to myself or the other hosts of this program email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com tweet at tfs tweets or look us up on facebook and instagram Music by Pete Dabrow. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange. <laughs>